Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy podcast. Thank you for listening to us again. Getting a lot of downloads for this. We really appreciate it. We appreciate y'all taking the time to, to sit and listen to me flap my bill about various stuff. Uh, a couple of things that are coming up. Remember, we're everything center fire and cross and, uh, and rim fire. I uh, wanted to remind y'all that the train up for the brawl starts on the 13th of February. The match is the 17th and 18th. So if you get a chance, go to the website, get signed up for that. Uh, I'm going to just run through a list of the sponsors for the event right now. Uh, I think we talked about um, a lot of these last week. But Mile High Shooting, Nissan Outdoors, DST Precision, Bartland Barrel, Spartan Precision Rifles, Leupold, Hornady, Manners, Cool, XR, XLR Industries. Uh, others involved are Vortex, KMW, Webad. SAP, Armageddon Gear, Fix-It Sticks, Primary Arms, B&T Industries, Roberts Precision Rifles, Defiance Machine, Wilder Tactical, Foundation Stocks, Proof Research, Magpul, Champion, Hoppies, Tactical Works out of Colorado, and Thunder Beast Arms. So that's what we got on the sponsor list so far. If you uh, have a chance that you need any equipment, we always recommend that you go to those sponsors first because we're not the only place that they sponsor. They sponsor in other places as well, and the only way they can stay in business is if y'all go and buy their stuff. So go buy their stuff. Uh, that's a list right there. There's anything you would need to get started in Precision Rifle or to update your gear. They're on the sponsor list. Anyway, hopefully we'll see you out there on the 17th and 18th for the match here at Rifles Only. Um, as stated during the last podcast, we were going to have a guest on with us today, and we have Dustin Solomon. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce, introduce himself and tell y'all a little bit about him, but I've been reading his books for the last two weeks, and there's some very, very interesting stuff in there, uh, kind of changing the way people think about training. But anyway, Dustin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here. Appreciate the uh appreciate the invite oh man my pleasure my pleasure you know the lindy always talking to you know he works been working with me for close to 20 years and he's he's read your books yeah. well before i did and uh he's been he's been talking about you know your your thoughts and theories and conclusions in our classes for years um but i had the opportunity to meet you through another mutual friend you know via phone and i just thought it'd be yeah. great to have you on man I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this well it's like I said, I'm, I'm honored to get the invite. I think I told you I, uh, back in the back in the contractor days, I was trying to set up some trying to set up some training with you. What was that? Fifteen? It was like fifteen years ago or something. Yeah, but, yeah. So, <laughs> honored to be asked to be on. Well, man. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where'd you get started? Where you were born? How old are you? What do you? Been, how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I guess. Um, so you know. Born in, actually born in Illinois, moved around a bunch um, as a kid, and then uh, joined the military. Uh, went to Naval Academy, and let's see when did I get there? Uh, Ninety-five, graduated in '99. Um, uh, after a brief, unsuccessful stint at Buds, I quit in Hell Week for you know reference. Don't want any confusion on that. Um, went into the surface fleet and. So that was, that was kind of a, that actually is, is kind of what indirectly, or I guess maybe even directly led to, to what I'm doing in the industry now. Um, was around with the academy, I was on a shooting team, mm -hmm. um, which is called the combat pistol team. And so we had uh, really just because of that, you know, where we were at, right? We had some people from Marine Corps and then uh, Naval Special Warfare that came out and worked with us, right? Uh, which was, you know, which was a really, you know, you know kind of unique opportunity. Um, so I, I graduated and pretty much everybody's on that team, right? We graduated with a, 
you know, it's not that we we're super high speed in anything, right? We graduated with a professional level of skill, at least with handguns. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, get ended up in the, in the surface fleet where, you know, the standard of the standard of qualification was assuming that you're even lucky enough to get to shoot. If someone would hand you a gun, you shoot five rounds off the fan tail when you're underway. And if you hit the ocean, you qualify. <laughs> yeah, that's a big target. Gun back to them, right? Like, yeah, well, you know, got to stick with what works, I guess. Um, so that, you know, the, the Navy hadn't taken any of that stuff seriously for a long time. Um, and uh, then, you know, the USS Cole happened, followed by 9-11, and, you know, Navy went through the typical big big organization flailex um, of trying to figure out what to do, right? One of the after actions that came out of the, the Cole was recognizing that nobody had any guns loaded right. uh, when they're pulling into Yemen. Not that it, that would have necessarily made a difference in that case, um, but it certainly was a, was a flag of like, hey, maybe we should actually have the ability to put bullets in the guns if we're going to have them. Right, because um, that that wasn't common practice, and a lot of times people wouldn't even get bullets. Yeah, um, I read that in your you book, know, and I was uh, pretty shocked about that. <laughs> well, I, you know the the, um, the kind of the prevailing theory was if we don't give anybody any bullets, we won't have any negligent discharges. And that's um, exactly what happened, isn't it? Yeah, we had. Uh, I think the first year after they started saying, you know, basically thou shalt load the guns. Um, you know, coming down from big Navy or the surface fleet average, like one negligent discharge a day for a year. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty exciting. Um, so anyway, I, w- w- when all of that kicked off, right. And they came down and said, you're going to load the guns. Um, I happened to be the, you know, really through, through no, no particular design, right. I happened to be the gunnery officer on the frigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I had background and knowledge about, you know, shooting and gun handling and, you know, what the standard model of training at least looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I tried to implement that and realize that it wasn't, you know, like even with, with me jumping up and down and kicking trash cans and screaming and stuff, it just it just wasn't feasible because I didn't have a range and I didn't have any bullets. Right. <laughs> so doing the traditional, uh, traditional method of, you know, kind of like block, the uh, block training wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was obviously, you know, obviously I was, I was pretty familiar with dry fire. And, um, and, and, you know, we, we had had some, you know, what, what at the time were, were not awesome experiences, but, but experiences that were, were definitely helpful, even at the academy, um, where we weren't able to get ammo for, you know, periods of time. And, you know, there were some politics involved in that, you know, internal stuff there. But anyway, you know, we, we, we had gone for periods of time where we, we couldn't do any live fire, so we had to train all dry fire, and, and mm-hmm. I knew that was effective at teaching gun handling and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I put together, uh, put together you know, this dry fire program that was um, based on, you know, basically doing one-hour blocks, and I would, you know, had this big schedule, and I'm trying to schedule, you know, everyone that was involved in security watch on the ship. So, yeah. you know, some. 120, 130 people out of, you know, 180 or 200 or whatever we had. Mm-hmm. So involved in this, I'm trying to schedule them, get them through this eight hour dry fire program and, and whatnot. It was kind of a mess. Um, but what, one of the things that I, I noticed as I was doing that, right, is I, w- I got guys in like the first hour was just teaching them to load, load and unload the breath, right? That's, that's the whole, the whole first hour. Mm-hmm. I got them back, you know, a couple days later, right, as they would, you know, be able to filter in and go to lesson two. 
And I realized that none of them could load and unload the gun, right? Mm-hmm. When they came back in the lesson two, <laughs> it's a disaster. I'm yeah. a disaster. These guys are a disaster. How are we going to get from point A to point B? Right. Um, so I ended up having to reteach everything that I taught in the first lesson. They came back when, you know, guys would cycle into the third lesson. I'm, I'm thinking we're just going to be in this continuous pattern of nobody learning anything, right? That's kind of my, like, after the first, you know, experience of going from lesson one to lesson two, guys show up in lesson three. And so we start out with a review, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, these people look competent, right? At the stuff that I taught them two lessons ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was a, a, a pattern that I started seeing, right? Of like, I would, I would teach something. People wouldn't learn it. They would remember nothing when they got it the second time. I'd have to give it to them again. And then when they show up the third time, they started to look like they actually knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that kind of became a consistent pattern, which I, I can now explain why that happens. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, so I had that experience on the ship. I left there, went to a security attachment, um, which was the you know Navy's uh, answer to the call and you know attempt to sees a hundred million dollars of available, you know, ATFT money, <laughs> yep. whatever that, whatever, whatever that process looked like on the back end. Um, and, uh, so there, because of our specific mission was, you know, only ATFP or, or anti-terrorism force protection, um, and only, uh, you know, related to doing security, I was able to, you know, kind of propose and justify and get what we would consider more of the, you know, standard training model, right? Like mm-hmm. we're going to do training blocks, we're going to go do, you know, weak weapons here and, you know, whatever. And so all of my guys, or at least the, the majority of them were already mastered arms before they showed up to command, right? So they're already badged, you know, qualified military police. They had to do their recalls every, I think, six months or something, command, mm-hmm. right? Because they are, you know, the fourth military police officers. Right. And then went through, you know, all the Navy's new shooting schools that they put together. And then we did, I think, a week of weapons with weapons from Italian Quantico. And they did some other training with the Marine Corps. Um, and their, you know, combat, combat skills program or whatever. So there was all in all, I think the guys after, or maybe including their MA training, had about six weeks of dedicated range time before I got them. And what was supposed to be like a week long you know, kind of like advanced weapons block that we did before deployment. Mm-hmm. And so I get these guys that are badge qualified military police officers that six weeks of dedicated range time. Most of them don't have a consistent grip on the handgun. Right. Um, when they show up, right. And I'm just like, well, this is like, if you get one guy that shows up, that's super, you can blame that guy. And that's fun. Right. When you have 80 guys that show up after six weeks of training and all of them are super, like it's not their fault. Right. There's something that we did that was wrong in the delivery process. Yeah. Um, that did work. And so that was that, that, that experience really got me interested in how people learn, um, how our training, you know, or how that matches up with how our training is designed, how efficient or rather inefficient it is. And, and, and what can we do for that? Cause in six weeks of weapons training, you should have consistent grip on the handgun. You, should. you know, you're not going to be, uh, yeah, like you're not going to beat Rob Latham you know, going to a match, but like, you, you certainly should be functional. You know, you, you should be functional with the weapon system. And that, and that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you know, as much to that point, you know, the, the other thing that I noticed is like, in, particularly in terms of the gun handling, there wasn't a huge, you know, there wasn't really a huge variance in the overall skill level between 
the guys on the ship and then the guys at the security. I thought there was a little bit, but but mm-hmm. not significant. And I'm like, that shouldn't be the case. Eight hours of dry fire and maybe one range day should be pretty close to the same result as six weeks of range time. Um, wow. You know, that, 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 that just shouldn't be the case, right? Like there's, there's, there's obviously we're not making good use of the resources we have available to us and how do we fix that? So that's what kind of started me driving down the rabbit hole um, on uh, how people learn and particularly how it applies to, you know, firearms and tactical skills. Right. And so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And then where did, where did it go from there? Um, so I, 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 I got out of Navy in 04 and went and did the, you know, overseas contracting bit for a while. Um, kind of on and off for about almost 10 years. And when I'd be back from deployment, I would always try to grab someone and be like, Hey, you want to learn to shoot? Like, let me, you know, give you some classes. And, and, and I was really trying to focus on what I did on the ship and then how would I integrate wildfire into that with the idea that we'd build a, uh, you know, like a civilian training program for, you know, kind of like an advanced concealed carry class or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but really, as much as anything else, it was sort of an academic exercise for me at that point in time. Um, right. Of you know, how do we how do we deliver this stuff in a way that people are going to learn it that makes it more efficient? I didn't understand or wasn't really even aware of any of the background neuroscience. I was just knew what I did on the ship worked a lot better than I expected. Even though it, it wasn't like I set it up because I thought it would work well, I set it up because it was the only thing that I could actually do right mm-hmm. in terms of with based on the logistics that I had. Um, but I did recognize that it had worked pretty well. So I was like, well, how do I tweak this and turn it into something um, that works in these sort of like really low resource, logistically constrained environments? Because one of the things that I, I recognized um, when I got into contracting or right, working with people from all kinds of different backgrounds is that that's the majority of the armed professionals in that, that spot, right? The people that we, you know, you're going to see on youtube or you know they, they are going to go listen to for the most part are coming out of units you know that had a lot of range time and had a lot of ammo and they got a lot of high speed training and that's like you know, a lot of resources a as well a, right like it, it, but that's like a quarter of a percent of the industry right and, um it, it, you know in terms of people on the professional side and even yep. the civilian side you know you start going to and i know you guys see this is what you do for a living or you start going to classes um you, you know where you have a bunch of civilians in it and you see people that have been to like, you know, 20 or 30 shooting schools and they suck. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, to, like to the point where they're unsafe on the range even, mm-hmm. you know, um, be, if it's anything beyond just like square range stuff, right. And their gun handling is terrible. It's like, man, like you, you've been to like 10, 12 week long firearms classes. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. And like, you're not good. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you know, your, your habits, your bad habits are so ingrained that you're not really, there's almost no path forward from here, you know, yeah. like, um, all the time that you put into that. And that's just a waste, right? It's a waste of time, money, and resources. waste probably the wrong way to say it. Cause it's, you know, it's, people enjoy it and they yeah. get something to go do and stuff. But like, if your goal is to become a good shooter and you spend all that time and effort, um, and become a barely mediocre shooter with no path to getting better. Um, you know, we, we don't have to do it that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> like there's, there's certainly an alternative. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that, that, uh, uh, I, I kind of started working. That's when I started working on curriculum design and trying to tweak like, like how is it we can deliver stuff where people are actually going to learn it. 
um, 2009, 10 time frame. Um, one of my friends from the academy and I, Larry Yatch, was a, a SEAL from SEAL Team 3. We started a company, ended up in a joint venture with a range company um, doing some training that ended up not working out because um, our, our, our business model just wasn't wasn't functional mm-hmm. um you know which is certainly one, of the, one it's one of the challenges with with that method of training design is it doesn't match up very well with the economics um economics of the market um but anyway so kind of gave that a shot we ran out of money before we found a commercial uh commercially viable method of delivery so i went back overseas and larry stuck around for a while and then went on to do something else um so so that was 2009, 2010, uh, in the 2000, 2011, 2012 time frame. I was back from deployment. I had a friend of mine um, that had moved out to a rural area and wanted to do like some defensive shotgun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and she happened to be a, a research scientist with AFR, uh, Air Force Research Laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so I went out there to the class and wasn't able to really you know, just because of the resource constraints was still not able to deliver in exactly the way that I wanted it. But I was able to explain like, here's the way I would prefer to deliver this. And this is why. And she's like, well, what you're doing is actually super cutting edge um, in terms of training design from the neuroscience side. So you should go look up a couple of subjects. So she gave me a, you know, handwritten, you know, one page thing to go look up and, you know, about three and a half years and 200 pages of research later, I had, you know, the book that turned into building shooters, um, you know, basically, which, which is, you know, effectively a terrain map, right? Like how does the brain work right. um, in terms of information coming out of it? How does the brain work in terms of information going into it? Um, you know, really focus particularly on, you know, these areas of skills, but or at least that's what the, you know, the book is written around that framework, but it's really just how does information go in and out of the brain? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or, or I guess go into the brain and then get, get applied, right? Like get access applied. Right. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so that, that kind of got me, uh, got me started there. Right. And, and, and I guess, you know, breaking it, breaking it down, right. What, what I recognized in that research was that we have a, what, what I now call the, the first fundamental failure, right? Like we have a fundamental mismatch between the way that we deliver, information and deliver skills training to people and the way that their brains receive information. So that's kind of the first, the first piece. And that's what, what building shooters, at least in a, you know, in, in a theoretical framework addresses, right? Like here's all the science that shows you how the brain works. Right. And here's how we can design, deliver training in a way that matches that. So like, rather than transmitting on AM and expecting people to receive it on FM, let's just transmit on FM. Right, right. Yeah. Probably, probably right. It's not going to be all, you know, warbly. You're not going to have to, uh, you know, deliver 50 hours of training to get, you know, four hours worth of results out of it. Let's just deliver four hours of training for four hours of results. Right. Um, and we're going to do a better job with that if we if we match up with how people learn and, and stop wasting, you know, 90% of our, of our time and resources, uh, particularly in resource-constrained settings. So that was the first piece. Um and then, see, so yeah, I published on shoes in March of 2016, and then started looking at what are, like I say, I've got all the science, I've got the theoretical framework. Now, what are the actual barriers to implementation? Because there are some, right? There are reasons that we train the way we do. There are reasons that things are structured that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, very real reasons, both in the civilian world and in the 
excuse me, in the professional world. And so, so what are the barriers, right? What, what are the things that are preventing us or like make it very difficult for us to train in a way that matches how people learn? And so along that path of, of researching that and, and looking at the things that, you know, impacted in the organizations I've been a part of and in the civilian world and whatever, like one of the things that really stuck out was um, qualification. Right. Right. And like our ability and like, how do we measure, how, how do we measure things? Right? right. Like, and so that, that is the, is the second thing that, that, you know, I, I call it the second fundamental failure is that our, our methods of measurement are completely disassociated from anything that happens in the real world. And everybody knows that, right? Like right. it's not, it's not like this is a secret. It's not like I'm saying something that's, that's a revelation to anybody who's been involved in the industry. No, it's not, right? um, <laughs> not a revelation it, at you all. Know, this, this is not, yeah. Like there's, there, there's no, there's no, there's no secrets here, right. um, you know, but, 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 but there's been a lot of varying approaches to that, right. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the way that people try to address it. So one way is, is that we go and we go like, all right, we're going to um, get rid of aggregate qualification. I think everybody would agree that, that that's just a waste of everybody's time. Um, but they go to a lot of shooting schools and it's like, okay, we're not using aggregate qualification. We're going to hone on, hone in on specific elements, of performance, like, you know, a really well-known example, this would be the air marshals course, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, all right, you don't have this big, long aggregate qual where at the end you get one score and you have to score 70%. You have to pass the yard line, right? You've got to draw and shoot X number of rounds and X number of seconds and at this standard of accuracy. And it doesn't matter if you can do the rest of the course. If you can't pass that yard line, you're not going to pass the course, right? right? So you have to be able to achieve each of these elemental, you know, components of gun handling in order to, you know, pass, right? In order to, to advance. So that's good. It's definitely an improvement over the aggregate, you know, scoring models, which are basically set up to say like, Hey, as long as there's not something physiologically wrong with you, you can qualify so you can go work. Right. <laughs> basically, basically how those things are, are kind of modeled out. Um, and, and, and so those are, those are good. They're certainly an improvement um, because you do have to develop fundamental shooting skill, mm-hmm. but they're still not really relevant to the real world. Right. And so right. one of the things that, that I, well, I, well, before we, before we jump into that, Dustin, yeah. can we, can we go back to the, the first failure? All yeah. right. And that's, that's the way, yep. that's the way information is presented. And there are some Correct. specific reasons for this. And it's not, it's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's just the way that the brain works. Um, Correct. Can you give me just a 30,000 foot view of, of what you exactly mean by that? I mean, I already know the answer to the question because I've been digging through your books, but I think people need to yeah. need to hear that. Yeah, yeah, really good question. Thanks for thanks for backing me up there. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm going to give a really really simple model of the brain here, mm-hmm. um, and, and thinking about it as an information system. So um, this is it, like looking at the brain as an information system. Like, how does information go into it? Right? There's a, like first of all, let's talk about a couple of different components. Mm-hmm. So the first part that we have, right, if, if we're going to look at the process of getting information into the brain, is we have our senses, right? Like hearing, sight, touch, feel, like every piece of information that we get comes in through those senses, mm-hmm. right? Anything that comes in externally. So we, we receive information from our sensory system, and then before it goes to the brain, right, or I guess the first part of it going to the brain, right, it's going to go through some sort of filter. Right. So the brain's got this filter on it, and our, our filter wipes out some 90% of the information that comes in. Right. right? And, and all of us, all of us have experienced this, but most people probably seen the, you know, gorilla basketball thing or one of the, 
one of the other ones that people have done, right? Like we have this inattentional blindness. Our, our, our brains get rid of anything that we're not focusing on. For the right. Most part. Um, you know, and so everybody listening right now, like, you know, can you feel your toes in your socks? You know, you mm-hmm. couldn't until I said that. Now you can't unfeel them. Right. Right. Um, and it's, again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about the story here, right? Like we ignore most of the input that we get um, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to function. We couldn't function if, if we we had to process everything that comes in. Right. So our brains naturally, you know, ignore most of it. So that's something that's important as an instructor um, to understand is that most of what you're putting out is not being received. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the, the students are just it's not even going into the brain. Um, so that's the first piece, right? We've got this filter. Mm-hmm. Once stuff gets through the filter, then we end up in what's called the short-term memory system. And this is very similar to... Um, a computer's RAM, right? Mm-hmm. A random access memory. It's relatively small, right? It's, it's almost insignificant um, in terms of its storage space uh, in, in relation to how much information can go into the rest of the brain. Right. And it's also compartmentalized, right? And so let's just, I'm, I'm completely making this up for, for example purposes. Right. right. But let's just say that there are 10 pieces of information that can fit in the short-term memory. Um, that doesn't mean that I can give you 10 hand tool skills mm-hmm. because there may only be one of those 10 slots that'll hold hand tool skills. Right. Um, I can give you nine other pieces of information, but I can't give you 10 hand tool skills in, in one training session, mm-hmm. right? Or, or fit hand, 10 hand tool skills into the brain or land of the short term memory system. So that is the, the second piece. And then there, there's a couple things that are important to understand about short term memory. So, first of all, like I said, it, it's a lot like a computer's RAM. You can put information into it. You can work with the information that's in it, but nothing that's in there gets retained. Right. Right. Like you go to sleep and most of that information is going to get wiped away. Right. The you reason that I can other information. Yeah. The reason that I can go remember the, the lyrics to, to Motley Crue songs from the eighties, but I don't know where I put my keys five minutes ago. Exactly. Yeah. That's, 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 that's a really, really good analogy for how this works. Right. Um, so, you've got that short-term memory system, you can work with information that's in it, but nothing that's in it gets stored permanently. Right. Right. In order for that to happen, it has to get transferred to one or both of the other uh, memory systems that are in the brain, which are called respectively declarative memory and procedural memory. An older model people are probably familiar with is implicit and explicit memory. Mm -hmm. Um, The newer model is kind of in common use now is declarative and procedural. So, but you know, you say tomato, I say tomorrow with the level that we're talking about here, right? So, um, so declarative memory um, is conscious access, right? And so this is a, relating this back to shooting, right? This is one of the issues with the, uh, that yard line approach, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where you always know what you're going to do before you do it, right? I know I have to draw the gun and shoot X number of rounds and X number of seconds at X standard of accuracy. Right. I know what I'm going to do, and so I key that up consciously, right? And I concentrate on performing that task, right? So that is that that is a conscious access memory, right? And that is right. that is what declarative memory is. It's something I I understand. I go in, I consciously access it. I pull in information, and then and, and then I use it. Yeah, you can declare then, it physically or or verbally. Right. Correct. Physically or verbally. The other memory system is called procedural, right? And so procedural memory is what you're doing when you, you know, realize that you just drove to work even though you're trying to drive to the store and it's Saturday morning, right? Mm-hmm. You don't even remember being on the road, um, you know, for the last 15 minutes while you drove by the exit 
you know, you drove by the three exits that would have taken you to where you want you wanted to go, right? You got off on the exit, that takes you to work that's not even open because it's passing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the, uh, procedural memory is named for the unconscious access memory system, and that is what your brain is accessing when you're not thinking about it, right? So, mm-hmm. importantly for us, in anything that relates to you know application and combat, right, or application or critical incidents, is that your brain basically shuts off access, right? And we all experience this, right? Like try to do a math problem, even a simple one, when you're under some level of stress becomes very difficult, mm-hmm. right? Um, our ability to consciously and cognitively process information becomes much more difficult as our stress levels go up, right? And so what, what we're able to access is only what's in the procedural memory system. Right. So, um, so, so again, going back to that kind of qualification model, right, or the measurement model of, I'm going to know what I'm doing. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to grab that information. I'm going to consciously perform this skill. That's great. And that's fine. Right. And it's wonderful that you can do that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that information is also available in the procedural system. Right. Right. And the unconscious access memory system. So when you're under a lot of stress, you may or may not be able to actually go access that information. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not cognitive, or it's, if, if you're not capable of cognitively accessing it, if it's not in procedural memory, then you won't get to it, regardless of whether or not you can do it on a test. Okay. Um, right. And so that that's, that's kind of another feature. So if we, if we step back and we look at this model of the brain, right, I've got a filter, right, which is going to weed out most of the information that comes to me. Mm-hmm. I've got a short-term memory system, right, which is very, very small, can hold a very, very tiny amount of information, and can only and can hold even smaller amounts of specific types of information, mm-hmm. right? And that memory system, which is a conduit for everything, right? It's basically a required stop point for everything that comes into the brain. Um, and there are some exceptions to that in the later levels of training. But like talking about, about entry-level training, everything that's coming into the brain has to go through that short-term memory system where nothing gets stored and very, very small amounts of information can fit into it. Mm-hmm. And then in order for anything to go and actually be retained in the long term, that short-term memory system has to recognize that it's important, has to prioritize it, and then has to go through a bunch of chemical processes that physically transfer that information to an actual different geographic part of the brain. Right? It actually goes to different brain tissue mm-hmm. and gets stored in a separate place. Um, and again, there, there are two possible separate places for it to get stored, and it can get stored in one of those two or both of those two. Right? But if, if it is not in procedural memory, you will not do it under stress right um and so if, if if we look at that overall model of the brain and then compare it to our standard training model which is i'm going to give you every piece of information that is important to you in you know an eight hour period in one day well you're not learning any of that mm-hmm. you know you may have little tiny pieces of that that show up somewhere but the reality is is you're not learning any of that and what you do learn is probably not going to be in personal memory so it's not going to happen under stress yeah, so it kind of goes back to what that uh, that that saying in the in the shooting community. You know, whenever whenever things go wrong, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to fall back. You fall to your training. Yeah, yep. and fall back to your training. Exactly. So that now that you got the yeah, and I know that the reason that 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 particular saying has come up is because people out there have actually seen it. You know, they've they've seen it. Oh, they've, yeah. they've seen just you know not being able to function, and not only not only in shooting sports or you know or in combat, but in other things as well. You know, and pretty much yep. anything that you're doing in your life, you're still going to have to follow this same sort of same sort of path to get to that procedural memory. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so what I just laid out, obviously the, you know, like all of my materials are kind of around the, the tactical and the shooting world. Cause that's mm-hmm. sort of my background, but yeah, this is just how the brain works, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of funny, like some of the online reviews and, you know, discussions, people are like, yeah, like, you know, building shooter stuff like that, that's fine, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't apply to the civilian world. Cause again, like there are some commercial problems with it, right? Like mm-hmm. in terms of like, how do people spend money? How is it? How do you get students for short blocks over long periods of time? It becomes very difficult logistically. Um, you know, but my, my response to all that is like, hey, like I'm just a messenger here. This is not mm-hmm. my stuff. <laughs> I just yeah. wrote it down. I I just took it and wrote it down and applied it to this, right? But it's not. This is not my stuff. This is just how this will work. Right. Right. Um, Oh, we so, see it here too. So we you know, we do, that. we do precision rifle courses here, you know, and so the, it, yep. you know, the, and you know who we work for, I don't need to rehash that, but yep. on a lot of the, a lot of the civilian side of the house, you know, I have multiple clients that come back and take the same course every year and it's, or, yep. and then it'll get to the point where they're taking, you know, the same course, maybe every two years and uh, it, it, being able to, you know, it, I think that kind of what it boils down to is what it sounds like to me. And what I've read is that from your books and then what I've seen is that it's important, it's important to train, but just as important is the time not training. Yeah. And so that, you know, your brain has to have, I'll I'll let you explain that, but I've seen that in, I've seen that in, you know, in the training facility that we have here, but then to read it in your book, um, if you want to step on that one for a second. Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah. So there's a couple, couple things here. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of rabbit holes to go into. But just, just keep kind of keep that at the at the front level, exactly matching up with what you just said. So, r- remember this this process and this model, right? I got to get through the filter, get in the short term memory, and then from there, if it's going to be retained, it's got to get transferred. So, in order for that to happen, like the, the brain physically has to transfer the information, and that requires some internal process that involves things like protein synthesis, right? Like creation. You know, like you're actually building structures in the memory systems when you retain information for the long term. Mm-hmm. And so that requires some processes to happen. And in order for those processes to happen, there are a couple of, of, of things that contribute to that. And that's a, a big part of what that, that first book building shooters about, right? It kind of goes through those factors or at least the ones that are, um, instructor controllable that I had, you know, recognized at the point where I, when I wrote that book. Um, and so two of the big ones are offline time that are when you're awake and offline time, uh, when you're asleep. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, you're not going to learn because the right. brain is not capable of conducting those processes of taking information from the short term system and putting it in the long term system. If you don't sleep, it can't yeah. happen. Well, I don't right? think, I don't like, think the chemicals are made have to happen. There. It, yeah. Like you're, the chemicals aren't made like there are important components of that transfer process that that cannot happen while you're awake. Right. Right. Um, And so, yeah, like we've kind of got this, you know, like, Hey, you know, this this doesn't quite suck enough. Like if we make it suck more, it's going to be closer to combat. Right. Combat sucks. So let's make it suck more and it'll be better training. Um, And that, and that's really not necessarily the case um, depending on what the outcome of the training is. Right. If the outcome or if the objective of the training is like, can you put up with things sucking, right? That's <laughs> then obviously you need to kind of create those environments where things suck. But if the objective right. of the training is, is I want you to be able to perform these skills when things really suck and you can only access your procedural memory system, 
then we don't need to make things suck. We need to make the training line up with how we deliver information to the procedural memory system mm-hmm. and then make sure that it's stored there for the long term and accessible. Yeah. Um, and, and those are interestingly often mutually exclusive things, right? And that's right. Things, something that a lot of people understand. I, I know I get a lot of uh, um, commentary now, right? I talk to a fair number of trainers, and one of the things that I hear almost uh, exclusively, particularly on the law enforcement side, is people are like, man, I just want to get done with the qual because I recognize it's kind of a waste, right? I want to get done with the qual. I want to spend the rest of my time training as hard as we can and put guys under as much stress as we can on the range, right? I'm like, well, why? Well, because gunfights are stressful. I'm like, oh, it's agreed, right? So mm-hmm. the question is, do you want to prepare people to perform in a gunfight under stress or do you want to stress them out on the range? Because those two things, in some cases, there's a lot of nuance in here, but like basically those two things are mutually exclusive. Right. <laughs> so let's not, let's, let's understand what the objective of what you're doing is. Let's understand the impact on the student and then let's use that to perfectly design the training to achieve the outcomes that we want, right? right. Um, specific for the student, right? And specific to produce, producing operational results. Um, anyway, did that, that answer the answer the question that you had there? Yeah, it's just, it, you know, the way I've seen it, the way I've seen it is, you know, our, uh, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. And um, right. what, what I've noticed over the years, and just one thing, you know, our, our flagship class is our Precision Rifle 1 and 2. It's a fundamentals class. You know, it, it's a fundamentals yep. of marksmanship. You know, we do um, that. We shoot, you know, out to distance and moving targets, alternate positions, things like that. We do the same thing with our, with, with rimfire too, believe it or not. And, uh, and so it's kind of the, it's kind of interesting because whenever I first started out and I didn't really know too much, I mean, the course was, the course was seven days and a thousand rounds. And so now that same course is about 400 rounds, four and a half days. And we're seeing 10 times the result that we used to. Because we would go and we would be on the range, you know, in the beginning, you know, for us to be on the range, you know, 10 or 12 hours was, was common, you know, it was common for us to do that. And now, I mean, we don't, we don't have a session that lasts over three hours and most of them are two and a half and the results that we get are just incredible. And it looks like the way we, the way we see that we come in. So basically, you know, one of the common problems is for precision rifle that causes the most trouble is breathing and trigger control, you know, trigger control follow through being the biggest part of it. And so if someone comes up and they're, you know, their whole life, you know, they've been, you know, just tapping the trigger with the failure to follow through, you know, we sit there and we, you know, we explain it to them and explain it to them and explain it to them and explain it to them. And we do not see any real sort of improvement until the next day, you know, whenever they've been, you know, it's been put in there, we've shown it, we've shown it on video. We've, we've uh, demonstrated it. We've demonstrated it in the classroom. We've demonstrated it on the range. And it's like all of these different ways. And another thing that we do is we'll tell them, okay, now, you know, you're, you're in the prone with your rifle and here is your proper finger position so that you can come straight back on the trigger. And what I want you to do is I want you to dry fire that. And I want you to watch it when you do it. And I want you to yep. watch your finger from both sides. That way you feel it, you see it and you hear it correctly. And we'll, we'll spend, you know, a quite a bit of time doing that to where they're dry firing that rifle. They're not even looking through the scope. They're in the prone, you know, the guns are empty. We haven't even loaded right. them yet, but they're just watching. And it seems like if they watch it and they, they see it, they hear it and they feel it. It's like three different delivery methods that are going into their brain. It still doesn't help until the next day. <laughs> And then the next day yeah. it, we start to see, you know, pretty much across the board application of that. And so, it, yeah. So, so, so let me, let me jump in here. Cause this is a really, really important point that I think like, and anybody listening to this, that is an instructor, right? Like it, 
ter- terminology doesn't matter, right? Like people like to use clever terminology and then be like, oh, like I just told you something you already knew. Like there's a new term for it. Give me money. Is <laughs> that what I'm doing here? But I'm going to use some terms just, just, just so we can differentiate, differentiate between two concepts, right? There is a difference between failure to perform and inability to perform, mm-hmm. right? And we have not done a good job um, in the industry at recognizing that. Right? Mm-hmm. So in the traditional training model, right, we are often li- we're limited to interfacing with our students within the time frame that we have them mm-hmm. available to us, right? And so whether it be law enforcement training or, or whatever, right, like we will often look at students and we will look at the training period that we have them in even if we have them for a week, we'll look at that training period that we have them in as basically its own a goal in, in and unto itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you'll look at somebody and be like, all right, well, you have failed to be able to, you know, uh, appropriately manage the trigger and conduct, you know, conduct reset and follow through during this training period. Therefore, you don't have the ability to do this. No you failed to do this, which is not the same thing as you had the, in, you had the inability to do it. Right. right. Inability to do it would be like, I don't have a trigger finger. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, I cannot do this, right? I cannot use that trigger finger. I don't have it. A, a better example would be like I was teaching a, um, uh, one of my friends from the Academy had gotten in a really bad car accident and uh, lost the use of, of both his legs. And so we were working at some point, like in this, you know, back in when I was doing like a lot of training design and screwing around with stuff. It was like, Hey, well, what if I build like a, you know, self-defense class, like arm self-defense class for wheelchair, mm-hmm. right? Like, does that exist? I don't know. Like we, we couldn't find any place that exists. I'm like, all right, well, let's try to create one. Anyway, so I, I was working with him and was teaching him to shoot the way I would teach anybody else to shoot and realized that that didn't work for him very well because you didn't have some of the muscles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have control of these muscles, so therefore you can't use them to control the recoil. So we got to right. do something different, right? So like, again, difference between failure to perform is in like, I've given you this information, but working on it for 20 minutes, you can't do it. So let's throw that out and give you, and the, the way that this really impacts students negatively is you'll give people something that is the optimal technique that is going to help them be able to perform in combat, right? So for example, dropping the magazine with your shooting hand with a handgun or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Like they fail to perform that after 10 minutes of working on it. You're like, okay, you can't do that. Let me give you a crappy technique that will get the job done for you, but it's going to set you up for failure for the rest of your career. Right. Right. And we'll switch to that because you have failed to perform this in a half an hour. Right. And so that, that's, that's what I wanted to highlight there. There's a big difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is very common. And like what I've seen consistently, even in dry practice, people fail to perform. They come back the next time. They still may fail to perform. They start showing up a certain fourth time with the same material. Now they start looking like professionals doing something that they absolutely failed to do the first time they tried it, right? Yeah. Even within the first the first whole day of trying it, right? <clears throat> well, yep, yeah, like we've we've seen that. You know what I mean? It's, everybody's looking yep. like rock stars towards the end of the week. That's <laughs> it's really nice. Yeah, we say that you yeah, know that yeah. getting all those fundamentals into the into the procedural memory. You know, it's it's um and the way you know that I explain it in my class is that. You know, whenever you take a shot and it's at some extended range, you know, beyond 700 yards or whatever, and you misjudge the wind, like let's say you were, you were given it a mil and a half to hold into the wind and then you see the bullet impact, impact at two mils. So the bullet just gave you the answer on what you needed for the wind. But if you go back and you, you hold two mils this time, but you slap the trigger again, 
you put inconsistency into the weapon system. And so your correction really means nothing. And so what we need to make sure that we're doing right. is that we're correcting for an environmental condition, which is the wind, rather than a fundamental condition, which is piss poor trigger control. And so that's right. kind of one of those things to where uh, in, in our world, you know, you're, you're talking about a lot of close ranges. You got a lot of problems to solve up really close. We're basically trying to solve problems at a distance. And so all of these things, whenever you're fundamentally driving the rifle, make so much more difference just because of the math involved. The distances are greater. So if you're off a little bit here, you know, I always say if you have a gun that, you know, shoots, you know, one inch groups at 100, it should theoretically shoot two inch groups at 200 and three inch groups at 300. But that's where the rifle gods give you the finger, because if you're shooting, you know, one inch at 100, it's probably going to be you know, uh, two and a half, uh, two and three quarter at 200. And it's just going to get progressively worse out there. And a lot of that has to do with the environmental, right. but also it has to do with not driving the gun, you know, fundamentally consistent every time. And so that right. by working on the, on the fundamentals of marksmanship and getting them into procedural memory to where you are doing them without thinking. And it's kind of the, the way I explain it is it's like building neural pathways, you know, to where these things are actually going to exactly work. Yeah. And so, yeah. One of the best examples I give them, I say, okay, everybody in the room who's a right-hander, um, before you go to bed tonight, get your safety glasses on and brush your teeth with your left hand and just see how that works out for you. I bet you're going to need those safety glasses. And it's it's true. You know, I mean, every, a right-hander, you, you you brush your teeth with your right hand. You can do it while you're, you know, you're thinking about yesterday. You're thinking about tomorrow. You, you're not even, I mean, you get your teeth brushed really good. And then the next thing you know, you try it with your left hand and, oh my God, you're running into your gums and banging on your teeth and all kinds of crap with that toothbrush. And it's just a, a perfect right. example of what it is. I mean, it, it's, you, you have not trained that left side of your body to do an act that you have trained your right side to do your whole life without even thinking about it. Right. That that's that's the perfect analogy. And there, there's another point here that I wanted to um, wanted to hit specifically related to shooting skills. And it doesn't, you know, I think we talked about this last week, Brett. Like some of this, or most of it, really, like the brain stuff. It doesn't matter what what discipline it is of shooting. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter if it's shooting, right? It's just, yeah. just how the brain works. Um, so, but, but one of the things that is somewhat unique to shooting skills, right, is that. And, and really unlike even most other sports, right? Most other sports, when you think about what you're interfacing with in another sport as far as like tools, I mean, it was, it was going to be like a, like a bat, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of moving parts on a bat. Nope. Pretty consistent or a, a ball, right? Like right. It's, it's, it's not very dynamic. Um, whereas the, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, a, a firearm compared to a ball is extraordinarily complex. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, a bat or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Right. So, so, um, there are a lot of mechanical things, right? Like the, the interface between man and machine and then the physics involved in controlling the recoil, getting back on target body position, right? How much, what part of your body is touching what part of the gun is going to have a, you know, and how much of it and what the pressures are, they have huge impacts on your shooting performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of stuff going on here that, that gets a lot more complex than what most sports have to deal with. Right. Even, even looking at the high performance, you know, sports world. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, and, and so to that point, there is a lot of what we do that is extraordinarily progressive. And I don't say that in a political sense, at all i I just need progressive in terms of like there are a lot of building block skills that are going to go into performing what we you know a quote-unquote complex skill and i'm just talking about like a drawstroke 
mm-hmm. right, or a weapons presentation from, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. There are a whole bunch of building blocks in there from, you know, disengaging retention on the holster, uh, assuming the shooting grip, presenting the weapon, assuming flashlight picture, managing the trigger, right? All of those, you know, body position, all of those things go into successful performance on, a, you know, a, a draw stroke, for example, or, mm-hmm. or a presentation from low ready or whatever. Um, you know, with a, with a, with a long gun. Um, and so at any single point, if those things aren't in procedural memory, or if you have a component of that and that the trigger, trigger slap is perfect and it's, you know, I'll raise my hand is guilty, right? You want to watch. Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Bring, yeah. Bring me, <laughs> bring me out there and make the shoot fast. Right? Yeah. That's one of the things that, that's one of the things that I say. Video. Yeah. I say it in my classes. I said a long time ago, you know, whenever uh, I, a long time ago, I went into my wife's purse and I, I took the mirror off of her compact and I put it in my back pocket. Yeah. And so now when things start going wrong with my shooting, I pull that mirror out and I tell it the problem and it's typically staring right back at me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am, uh, I'm right there with you. So <laughs> anyway, the, the point being like, like trigger slap is a great example. Like you, you can do all kinds of other things really well, right? Yep. If you're slapping the crap out of the trigger, right? But a really poor trigger finger position. It doesn't matter, right? If we don't have that, and that trigger management is part of the procedural memory system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what else we're doing, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if we're, you know, halo jumping into an Australian rappel, right? right? Trying to shoot upside down. You're, you're not going to be good at that because you don't have the, the fundamental skill of trigger management. Right. Um, and that fundamental skill of trigger management is, is now a limiting factor for you, right? right? And so when it comes to, like, the development of the fundamentals, right, and this, this really goes back to how it's kind of like that model of how we learn, right? If mm-hmm. I rush past those fundamentals that are, like, the, kind of the basic building block components of everything else you're going to do with a gun and those get either not consolidated or some like really jacked up thing gets consolidated, right? It doesn't matter what the, the rest of the stuff I'm building on top of that is. It's mm. never going to be effective. No, it's never right? going to be and solid. So we, it, 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 it's never going to be solid. And it doesn't matter how many repetitions I do. In a lot of ways, the more repetitions I do, right, of all this other stuff with really crappy trigger management, right, all I'm doing is just reinforcing crappy trigger management right so there's a you're building a neural pathway that's incorrect that's incorrect right and it is performance limiting yeah right so for example um this obviously is very i'm sure it is i'm not a precision rifle guy like i don't know that i I know i I know enough about it if i started talking about it everybody would know i'm I'm an idiot so i I won't well i know Um, a guy you can visit with (laughs) fair enough well i've got ways to do that at some point um but uh you know, the, the perfect example in, in shooting, right, is like everybody likes to kind of brush past the fundamentals of shooting and get into like, right, we're going to shoot fast, right? And so we want people to shoot fast, we want them to draw fast, and so we got them in close range and we got them trying to draw the, you know, gun under 1.5 and, you know, shoot multiple rounds and we want them to get success, so we're going to put them really close and give them a really big target, right? And so now we got people with crappy trigger management, crappy drift, crappy grip and they're not getting any visual reference off the gun because they're able to get a fake visual reference that doesn't happen for real right on paper target of three yards right uh, right so they're using the impacts on the on the gun as their you know their visual alignment or impact on target is visual alignment mm-hmm. so I, all these things going on right and i think i'm doing something good for my students or i think i'm doing something good for my training Right, but at the end of the day, all I've done is a bunch of repetitions of crappy grip, crappy trigger management, right, and irrelevant visual skills. And so that 
So how much is that really going to translate into helping us in the real world? Probably minimal, right? At best, at best minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there, there are two terms in the, in the, the first book going shooters that I use, right? I call them uh, progressive, uh, uh, progressive interference and progressive reinforcement, mm-hmm. right? And so as we do these more complex skills, right? So for example, uh, presenting from the high ready or draw stroke or presenting from the low ready, whatever. As I do that, I'm managing the trigger, right? right? And I'm gripping the gun. So if I do a hundred repetitions of draw stroke and I have a different grip every single time, right? I am interfering with my ability to develop an effective grip, right? And if I'm slapping the crap out of the trigger with poor, you know, trigger finger position mm-hmm. every single time, I am interfering with my ability to manage the trigger and I am interfering with my ability um, to uh, grip the gun effectively a hundred times in a row. Right. Right. Um, versus because I did not have those things consolidated effectively as part of procedural memory with the correct technique performance before I went to more complex skill. So as I practice the more complex skill, I reinforce really bad performance in the progressive skills that lead into that more complex skill. And I make my, I make it far more difficult for me to ever become a good shooter. It's not streamlined. It's chaotic. Correct. Because I'm practicing, I'm making myself worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> in some ways, right? Or, or, or at the very least, I am limiting my ability to become a good performer. Right, right. Well, like I may be able to, you know, whatever, do whatever it is I'm doing. Right, hit a hit a silhouette at two yards in a second and a half or something. But I'm limiting my ability to ever be able to do that at fifteen yards. Right, right. Um, so uh, the the flip side of that, right, is what I call progressive reinforcement. So let's say that I do have a procedurally consolidated good grip and I do have a procedurally consolidated, um, you know, effective method of trigger management. So now I do a hundred draw strokes and as I'm learning, right. And I'm starting to, you know, consolidate and enhance my draw stroke. I'm also, you know, reconsolidating, right. And I'm enhancing and I'm practicing effective grip and effective trigger management. Right. So, and that really boils down to what did I do at the beginning of training? Right. So, right. It has become a huge, huge focus in the training design side of like, we gotta, we gotta crawl before we, you know, like everyone always says crawl, walk, run. And then we try to do all that in about an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Remember no. back to that, you know, cognitive architecture model. That's not how your brain works, right? So right. like, let's learn, let's develop, let's consolidate the fundamentals, right? And let's do it in a way that enables us to, build up to those higher levels of skill performance. So we don't have to go back and be like, all right, well, we've now spent two weeks learning advanced shooting skills, but nobody has effective trigger management. Right. Um, so nobody can hit anything. Right. That doesn't do much for us. Yeah. I got you. Well, let's move on to the qualification again. We touched on it just a little bit and I, I drug you yeah. back into, into this. I wanted to get that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you did. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we, we touched on that. It's a, it, I don't know. It's just fascinating, but uh, carry on with the qualification thing. We've, we've established um, you and I, because we're solving the world's problems, but everybody else solved it before us. Qualifications kind of suck right now. And I've got right. stories that I could tell you that are insane. And I know that you have the same. Yep. Yeah. So, it, so anyway, so back in 2016, I started looking at what, what are the barriers to, you know, implementing effective training, right? What, what, what are the barriers that exist, particularly in our workforces? Cause that's really my, you know, personal passion just because of, you know, background or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
and you know qualification of course is one that, that just sticks out because it is everybody knows it's a waste of time right um particularly the aggregate qualification but yet it eats up the majority of our time and the majority of our resources because it is in fact mandatory right, right? it's the only thing that i have to do for whatever reason we always get a couple people that have difficulty doing it and because it's the only th- it's the only score that actually matters right like you, you end up with sort of like two groups of people, right? Like the people on the bottom who are like struggling to pass it. And then the people on top who are competing with each other to be better at it. Right. Right. On a score higher than you than, you know, on, on the only score that we're actually keeping. Um, and so both of those groups kind of lose out because the guys on the top end, all they do is practice the qual because they want to get better at it, right? They do things related to the qualification, mm-hmm. which is everybody knows is irrelevant. Right? But nonetheless, that's what I spend my time working on. Guys on the bottom end are spending all their time, you know, barely meeting standards that are designed to just make sure you're not physiologically impaired before we give you a gun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so nobody's uh, nobody's really coming out ahead there. And so, so what we did is we went back and looked and said, all right, like let's 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 take a completely different approach to this, right? And let's say, what are the physiological and neurological requirements, right? What are the things that we actually do for real? Right. And then how do I replicate that on the range? Right. Which mm-hmm. is a very different approach than saying, like, I want to try to replicate the environment on the range. Like, I'm going to scream at you and shoot paintballs at you while you're on the range. Right. Because that's mm-hmm. going to try to replicate the combat environment or whatever. OK, but are, are we replicating what we want the student to perform? Right. No, I'm just dumping stress chemicals into their brain on the range. Right. Which right. Makes it so that they can't learn anything. Right. So that's that's. that's it's a good theory, but if you look at like the, how the brain chemistry works, it doesn't really pan out well in terms of producing learning, right? So mm-hmm. we understand the learning model. The learning model is I have to do these things with repetition. That repetition has to be spaced over time. I have to build the skills progressively and put them in the procedural memory system. Once they are in the procedural memory system, then they will be accessed under stress, right? If they're associated with the operationally relevant combat-related stimulus, mm-hmm. right, will access that part of procedural memory, and then those things will happen, right? And so most of us, like anybody with an operational background, has experienced this where something has just happened. You don't really realize until after it happened, like what you just did. You mm-hmm. know, oh, crap, that just happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's not stuff you wanted to happen, <laughs> but it did anyway. Right. <laughs> that was well-practiced and totally irrelevant to what just happened. I'm amazed I'm still alive. <laughs> um <laughs> But, but, but that's why that's why these things happen, right? Your brain goes and grabs something in procedural memory and spits it out, right? And hopefully it's relevant. So, um, so again, looking back at that training model, it's like, okay, I understand this is how the brain works. So, let's try to make what we do in training relevant neurologically to, right? In terms of like, let's fire the same circuitry in the brain in training that we want to work for real in the real world. Mm-hmm. Right, which is a little different than saying I'm going to try to replicate the stressful environment of combat. It's like, no, I want to design and build the correct circuit board in the procedural memory. So, how do I do that? Right. Um, and so, what we went, we did is we went back and looked at it and said, so like, all right, well, what is it we're doing? Right, object recognition, motion detection, the application of context, understanding spatial relationships and distances, and all of these things that go into real world performance. Right, which are very importantly continued awareness and continued evaluation of the subject, right? Because if mm-hmm. we're talking about guns in our hands with people, right, which is, is what we're talking about in the tactical world, where there, are, there is a gun in my hand because there's a person in front of me, 
right, right. or a person yep. that I need to potentially deal with with this gun, mm-hmm. which necessarily involves me continuing to look at and evaluate that person and a combination of that person's behavior, right? The subject's behavior, it's not a target, right? In the military environment, maybe it's a particular law enforcement. It's not a target. It's a, it's a subject. Right. It's right. That person's behavior is going to impact what I do. Right. In a combination with the terrain and all the rest of what's going on around me, mm-hmm. those things are going to impact my decisions and my actions. And as those things change, my decisions and my actions also need to change to, to match that. Right. Um, right. Which is completely different than even when we get into high level, higher levels of qualification, like, you know, the air marshals course or, or similar programs that other people have. Right. Right. They're, they're kind of modeled on that is, here is a defined skill sequence, right? Like here are your 10 skill sequences you have to be able to do. Practice those till the, till the you know, practice those until you can do them. Right. And now you're qualified. Um, right. But those things don't match up. So I had a, um, an anecdotal example here, right? I got a, a buddy at a, you know, um, unit who was trying to go to a different unit, right? That was training on some really difficult shooting standards mm-hmm. to get there. And he called me in a little bit of a panic. Um, about a year and a half ago and he's like hey he's like i, I i've been working on these shooting standards they're super difficult i'm working on it for like a month and a half i'm pretty much there on the standards um he's like but now i'm going in and we're starting to do a bunch of housework he's like i always fire i present the weapon i always fire mm-hmm. like i can't not fire when i present the weapon because all i've been doing for the last three and a half months is every time i present the weapon i pull the trigger right Another anecdotal example for that. So the guy that was my business partner, Larry, and we used to tell the story to students, right? I'm not that's telling them, hanging them down the river here. Um, is uh, he almost didn't get his trident because of a similar event, right? So we've been we were on the shooting team at the academy together. He's you know very good handgun shooter. Been shooting for a long time. They were doing a you know training DBSS thing when he was in SBT, and he had to go in this little tiny hatch and whatever you know practice ship they were doing. So he swings his MP5, draws his his uh, SIG and he fires a couple sim rounds through the door mm-hmm. um, for for no other reason than he never drawn his pistol without pressing the trigger before. Yeah, right? there wasn't anything there that indicated that. Right, he just went into a skill sequence and he ran that skill sequence, even though that skill sequence, the practice skill sequence, was not relevant to what was in front of him. Yeah, it um, wasn't required. And so he did it anyway. He, he, right, like he, he did it anyway. And and you see this, like anybody that's run a bunch of force on force stuff. Right, any instructor that does that, you see this in your students. You see them complete a skill sequence is no longer relevant to what's in front of them mm-hmm. um, because they have that skill sequence. Right, you'll see yard lines from qualification get performed in force on force training. You'll see them happen on the street, even if they're not relevant to what's actually going on in front of that person. Right, right, um, and so a lot of that does relate back to at least at some level, right? Like how it is that we've trained because we have trained people to develop specific skill sequences and those things run kind of like subroutines, right? It's sort of like writing a computer program. And once I hit play on that, the thing is just going to run to the end. It's right. very, very difficult, right? The more stress I'm under, the more difficult it is to be able to impact that, right? That thing is just going to run until I get to the end of it. And then it's going to stop. And hopefully it's still relevant by the end, <laughs> Right. but if not, it looks really bad, particularly on like a body camera right? yeah. um, or a surveillance camera somewhere. So anyway, so, so looking at what is it that we need to actually do in the field, right? We need to evaluate information that's in front of us. We got to continually process information that needs to feed into our skill performance. And then I need to perform skills that are solving the tactical problem that's in front of us, right? right? Which, which, um, 
a core component of that is continued information processing, right? And processing the information that's going on around. Um, I was talking to a sheriff uh, down in Georgia a couple of years ago, um, talking about some of these new tools that we're building, right? And I was like, well, think about what we have always told people in a traditional qualification environment, right? Ignore everything that's around you. Ignore all this other stuff that's going on. Just, you know, yeah. Particularly to Focus. get into like the, the real, the, the real crappy, like, you know, kind of like old school, like passing the claw, yeah. ignore everything, just look at the front side, work on your trigger management, ignore everything else that's going on around you. Okay, that may help you pass the claw, but is that what we want you to do for real? Get the gun out of my holster, ignore everything that's going on around me, and just look at the front side and press the trigger until I've completed the required number of trigger presses? Right. <laughs> Does that, does that get us from point A to point B operationally? Like, yeah, probably. obviously not. So, yeah, obviously not. So anyway, so, so we started looking at that um, from, from, the, from, from the problem of like the fact that I have to pass these tests drives most of the resource, uh, the, the, the resources and training, particularly in line units, towards preparation for execution of and administration of the test. Mm-hmm. Right. That becomes. Just that is, and that's, I don't think that's ever going to change. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever test we have to pass is going to be what the design of the training system is intended to do, right? And that mm-hmm. is just a, you know, I mean, we see that really even at a, at a subatomic level, right? Look at quantum mechanics. What do you see? You see what you look for, right? Right. Like, the fact that we're measuring and observing a system is going to impact the system, right? right? Down to a subatomic level. So, let's, let's, Stop the idea that we can have a qual that's not going to impact the training system, right? And embrace the fact that it's going to, unless have a qual that's actually relevant to what we want people to do, right? Um, so anyway, so driving down that, I'm kind of talking around here probably more than I should, right? But kind of driving down that, we said like, look, we need object recognition, motion detection, and we need to stop having targets and we need to have subjects that people that behave right mm-hmm. that people interact with mm-hmm. and they need to be able to have you go into a environment where I'm measuring your performance definitively to specific standards but you don't know what you're going to do you don't know what targets you're shooting you don't know if you're shooting and if you do you don't know how many rounds you're going to fire right but that that's all going to be based on what is presented in front of you it's going to be based on the solving the tactical problem but we need to be able to do that we need to be able to measure performance empirically and importantly, we need to two things. One, we able to we got to be able to do this at scale, and we got to be able to do it in a way that's affordable, mm-hmm. right? Because I can build a ten million dollars solution, but it doesn't become a solution because nobody can afford it, right? Right. Um, and the people that can't afford it can't afford enough of it for anybody to be able to do enough of it to get good at it, right? Which is the second part of that is in order to be I can't just measure this; I have to be able to train to be able to achieve a level of performance, right? Um, which is a second uh, a second requirement for scalability and affordability, um, because these these things of processing information that's going on around me, making decisions, right, like interfacing with subjects and making good tactical decisions and performing effective skills in relation to the tactical environment, mm-hmm. that's not something we just need to test. That's what we need to train, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which means that we need to be able to do that with repetition. And we need to be able to do it over time, right? And so while, while they're this is not a definitive statement I'm about to say, right? Because there are certainly elements of let's work on trigger management and we're not going to worry about anything else just to trigger, right? Because we're going to isolate and hone in on this. There's certainly drills where that's all relevant, right? For example. Um, but basically, why would I 
you know, like little things like that aside, why would I ever be pressing a trigger where I haven't made a decision to do that and I'm not interfacing with something that's behaving? Right. Like, that that's the only reason that I have the gun, so why would I use the gun without doing that? Right. right. And then training. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and so that, that, that set of requirements and the requirement to also have empirical and consistent standards that can be measured, right, that can be effective benchmarks that people can train to and try to get good at, right, while they're also getting better at, at what they need to be able to do to do their job as an armed professional mm-hmm. became really kind of the, the driving focus of what, you know, I've been doing and what we've been doing as a company for the last five, five and a half years, okay. um, which, you know, we, we call that the neuro, you know, the quote unquote neuro, neuro shooting system. Right. right. The, the name of the tool. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, uh, again, we, we kind of went down the rabbit hole on, on the science there. And, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a book called Neuro, right, which basically goes through the whole piece of design and has a bunch of the background research and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd uh, recommend to anybody that does, you know, re- read the first half of it and the second half to treat as reference, um, which is which is how it was written, what that was for. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, so basically what we did uh, is we strapped three laser pointers on the shot timer. Um, we've got the... Uh, kind of an integrated control system in there with wireless control and uh, um, some Bluetooth and stuff. we got a shooter isolation module, um, which, you know, one of the things that's always been very frustrating to me, um, you start adding people on the range, you're not out there by yourself. It's like, all right, well, I can't even look at my shot board. Right. Right. Like, I'm kind of like trying to manage the trigger, right? But this is, you know, particularly for like close in cheering. I, I have no idea what my shot splits are. I have no idea what my actual response time was. I just know you know, I got my rounds off before the target turned or right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know what my standard of accuracy is because I can see holes in the target, right. but I have no idea what the rest of my performance is. And that becomes very, very challenging training in a group setting to be able to address some of those things that we really want to do to push higher level shooting performance and be able to actually do things like evaluate trigger management, and grip and recoil management skills and all the rest of those things that tie into building people into effective shooters. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have a, a, a sensor array people can wear that basically turns their whatever's going on in their individual lane or their individual array um, into a, you know, isolated thing where you can measure individual shooter performance and get the same thing that you would get by yourself on range with a shot timer, um, no matter how many people you have on the range. Okay. Um, and uh, so that, that that's a module. And then depending on lighting conditions, um, we've got some uh, projection lenses that allow you to do, you know, shapes, orientations of shapes, um, and then, you know, combinations of that. So, for example, you know, triangle in one direction can have an assigned meeting a triangle in another direction again assigned meeting you put them both together they have yet another meeting right mm-hmm. um kind of thing so the the thought process there is this enables us to uh, be able to create very dynamic environments at a very affordable rate um in way that are in, in ways that are very very scalable so basically what what we have done is we've we've created a tool um that you know, anybody that's familiar with a shot timer can, can pick it up and use it at, at the basic level, mm-hmm. right? That changes your target into a subject, makes your target, or excuse makes the subject behave, right? And now your performance has to correspond with that subject behavior, mm-hmm. right? And we're able to do that in a way that is empirically measurable down to sub-millisecond accuracy, mm-hmm. uh, depending on wh- which configuration of tools you're using. So, um if we think about the other ways that we have tried to attack this problem, and, and there's certainly other people who have addressed these same issues, right? We have force on force training. 
we had simulators, you know, video simulators and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But none of those have ever given us a way to do performance level shooting performance measurement. Right. So for example, if I have a video simulator guys drawing a gun, there's at some point in there that guy becomes a shoot. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know I need to engage him. Um, but I am still largely limited to, I have now created, um, a pathway that goes into execution of, you know, a skill sequence. Right? You see a lot of people in simulators will do up drills and fire two rounds. Why? Cause that solves the problem in the simulator. Right. And it replicates what they do on the range. That doesn't necessarily replicate what the real world is going to require. Right. Um, two rounds may or may not solve the problem. Right. Um, probably not. And so, and, and, and depending on what you're shooting, probably not. Right. Yep. Exactly. So, um, so with, with our system, right, like there is a stimulus that's going to show up and unlike in a, in a video based environment where, you know, somebody is a threat, at what point was engaging that threat required? We don't really know that, mm -hmm. right? Like we can probably say that within say a second to a second and a half, right? Or even three quarters of a second when that, you know, you can justifiably make this decision to shoot, but we don't know that for sure. And so we can't really measure your performance against that. Right. Right. Um, and our, because we're in a quote unquote full on tactical scenario there and the computer system is going to take, okay, there's been an engagement. The engagement has been successful. So we're going to call this a successful engagement. You don't really have the, the ability to measure when the endpoint of that was either. Okay. So with our system, that's completely different because I know what stimulus is telling you to do daily force. Let's say it's a, you know, a red gun pointed to the right, right? That's projected on, on a subject. Okay. I know when that shows up exactly, right? So seven millisecond accuracy, I know when that appeared. Um, so I know when you start shooting in relation to that. And because that is the requirement that tells you to shoot, you're going to shoot until that goes away, which requires you as a person shooting to continue to process information coming from the subject mm -hmm. as you're applying the skill. Right. And that is an omnipresent requirement for everything that you do with the neurosystem. You never drop into performing a long skill sequence like drawing and firing four rounds, you just perform deadly force until deadly force is no longer required. Right. right. And so it is a, like even in fundamental skills training of like, we're not doing anything tactical. You're just working on the mechanics, marksmanship, trigger management. You still need to continue processing information that is given to you by the behavior of the subject. And that like literally down to a synaptic level as we're, as we're starting to teach people using the system that becomes a component of the shooting skill, mm -hmm. right? The ongoing information processing and gathering, right? And that feeding into the skill performance. So anyway, so that, that's kind of the, the training component of it. And then on, on the measurement component, because I can measure these things empirically, right? I can give you an array of subjects to deal with. You don't know if you're shooting. You don't know which one you're shooting. If you do, you don't know how many rounds you'd fire. But I can still measure your performance against the benchmark standard. Um, and tell you so, for example, I, you know, when the deadly force stimulus shows up, if your gun's in the holster, you have, I'm just going to throw some numbers out here, right? Like, you have uh, two seconds to get your gun out and put your first round on target. Mm -hmm. Your shot splits need to be within, you know, whatever, 0.3 seconds of each other. And mm -hmm. when the deadly force stimulus changes, you need to de-escalate within, you know, a second and a half or something. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm completely making these numbers up. Right. Right. But I can do that without ever telling you what you're going to do ahead of time. Okay. <clears throat> and so we're able to 
maintain the empirical measurement where, I, where we can drive the high-level shooting performance without creating predefined skill sequences. Okay. So it's a completely different way uh, of being able to measure tactical performance, completely different approach to measuring um, measuring what, how, how shooters perform, um, uh, where, where we get away from having to focus everything based on performance in a predefined sequence that is in that conscious access memory system. Okay, well, you, you, you know what this thing looks like, okay? So yep. let's say I called you up and I gave you a credit card and you sent me one of these. What does it look like? Yeah, so you're going to get, like I said, it, it's basically a shot timer with three laser pointers strapped on it. And it's obviously kind of all enclosed in a box. Okay. Um, about the size of a, uh, um, about the size of a, of a, of a box of rifle ammo, right? Okay. Like a you know, major caliber rifle ammo. Okay. Be a, be a comparable, uh, um, uh, you know, comparable size for it. So you, you've got a screen which says your, your data output. Um, there's some control buttons on the side. There's some programming buttons on the top. Mm-hmm. There's a tripod mount on the back, you know, mount to any standard tripod, you mm-hmm. know, camera tripods or whatever. So a wide variety of things you can do for mounting. Um, and uh, there's there's three laser points, excuse me, three laser ports on the front of it. The the ability to screw the uh, projection projection lenses into. Okay. Um, and so so the the unit itself comes uh, self-contained, right? So the a single. Uh, you know, single unit will, you know, project on, you put it on a tripod, point it at what you call a target, now call a subject, mm-hmm. and it'll, you know, project based on, uh, you know, whatever you define it to be. So you get the unit, like right now, we're still kind of in beta on the on some of the software mm-hmm. that we've got almost 300, like, preset drills that are going to come in. So you don't, you don't need to go to a whole bunch of fancy stuff to get this out of the box and use it, right? My goal is you get right. out of the box, put batteries in it. Um, push one button and, and you're off to the races on, on getting effective training. Right. Um, and the, the, the more you want to do with it, right? Like you can kind of dive down the rabbit hole and get really complex with developing, developing your own scenarios, writing your own drills, right? All that can be done directly. You don't need any other software to do it. It all comes directly in the, you know, Let, uh, let's back up again. In the device so there. Yep. you've got, you've got your three lasers mm-hmm. out the front of it and you're going to project, you're going to project these different colored shapes onto a target. Onto it, yeah. Onto a target, it can be, you know, like. And I need to be clear here: if you're out in direct sunlight, right, you're not going to see these shapes. You're going to be right. down to the dot. Okay. Right. Um, so that's kind of, kind of like light condition dependent right mm-hmm. um, But yeah, so it's it's like I said, it's three laser pointers are going to point at, you know, whatever it is you pointed at. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's actually one of the other things that is in application is really cool. It doesn't matter if I'm on paper. Doesn't matter if I'm on steel. Doesn't matter if I'm on bob targets that have clothes on. Mm-hmm. I can project them. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, it's not like you know you're you're trying to, to throw up a projector where I need a screen and I have to go into a low light environment. Like, no, put put definitions on what dots on different you know different dots on different parts of a uh, a target mean and get a couple of these things and you've got full on behaving subjects in front of you on in broad daylight, right? Standing right. out on the you know a range, right? <clears throat> All right, um, so that's 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 kind of what I was, you know, I mean, I was, I was reading about it and I couldn't really figure out exactly, you know, what this thing looks like and how it works, but right. it sounds like it's a, it's a, it's more about decision making than it is about uh shooting actually. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the goal is like the, the simplest way to explain this is the sensory stimulation and performance measurement tool. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've got some people looking at them right now, actually, on the, the military side for something that has nothing to do with shooting at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, we, we're not going to use shooting. We just need a way to create dynamic stimulus around people in this training set. Right, right. Um, we, we, which is what it's for, right? There's, there's, you know, marketing hat on here, right? There's a bunch of different applications from you know, physical therapy and cognitive processing and all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, so you get that, you get that, that basic box, right? Like, which is, which is the neuro neuro projector. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is kind of the base, the basic module of it. Now it's, it's got a communication suite in it, right? It's got both Bluetooth and wireless, mm-hmm. um, depending on what, what type of communication you're doing with it. So you can take that. Now let's say I want to address the, kind of age old problem of like, all right, I'm, I'm doing this dry fire because I want to get good at this stuff. And I don't want to get dry fire suckered into drawing my gun, you know, pressing the trigger and immediately going back in the holster. So I want to look at my environment and what's around me. So I'm, you know, finishing my dry fire drill and I do my scan to look around me and do that for two weeks. Now I flip my head around and don't look at anything. Right. <laughs> Every time I shoot, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now I can actually have stuff to look at that may or may not be there. Right. There may or may not be something projected, you know, in, in t- different places around me. So these things, you know, uh, you can wirelessly network um, up to five of them together without any external router or anything. Just have these things. They'll talk to each other um, and be able to run, you know, and, and there's a, a couple of different things there that we can do. So one of them is um, being able to process peripheral vision, right, mm-hmm. while I shoot. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go too far. I don't want to go too far into that on a kind of open podcast here, but people... Mm-hmm know we'll know what i'm talking about yeah um and then uh you know being able to go into the uh you know 360 degree environments where there's actually stuff around me that may or may not be there that i have to look at and respond right. to um you know like even you know like i said even dry fire training in the basement that can be integrated into that yeah. um so multiple of these things you know talking together and as you start kind of scaling out from there right there's you know you can bring in a router and put in an iPad and, you know, control, you know, synced up lanes, you know, run, you know, we, we designed, we designed it. We haven't tested it to scale. We designed it, you know, have a hundred plus lanes with mm-hmm. multiple, you know, subjects per lane. You're, you know, running them all off to centralized, you know, point of the iPad and pulling all that data back so you can process it and stuff like that. So nice. Um, very, very, you know, very, very scalable system. Again, with, with the objective of what we did, right? The objective of design was not, let's create the fanciest thing, right? And there's a, there's, there's actually a bunch of advantages to the simpler, um, to the simpler, uh, simpler stimulus, um, which that, that kind of gets out of, I think, what we had time to talk about um, in terms of the, uh, like how it gets applied, but like really, really simply, we're using a concept that we call um, representation generated imaging um, okay. in, in terms of like, like, how we're engaging the brain here. So right. most people probably know, but it's not something we necessarily think about that we don't actually see what's in front of us. No, I know. Right? We see a, a brain constructed simulation that it's kind of like throwing together based on a whole variety of things, right? Including, you know, preconceived notions and bias and, you know, context and other stuff we're thinking about or whatever, right? Which, which is kind of interesting. And it's very, very spooky when you start reading about the neuroscience of the visual system. And visual awareness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, like a, what I'm seeing is not what's actually there, and b, it's not what's there right now. It's what was there at least 100 milliseconds ago. 
Yeah, yeah, we, exactly. Um, we, you see that a lot, though. It's like we, we do a lot of stuff with law enforcement. And, and you even mentioned it in your book. The, the worst form of evidence is eyewitness accounts. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually one of the things that, I mean, because I, I, I know this, right, but it didn't really, didn't really, I would say, become really real to me until I started getting, I just started doing shooting drills with them. Is that I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, I, I stopped shooting, you know, like, I didn't fire around after that thing showed up. And it's like, well, the, the timer is not lying. Mm -hmm. Right. You still saw it, but it was not there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting to actually experience, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> your process, your processing is late, right? Like what, what you're constantly aware of is not what's there. It was what was there. Yeah. Or it, it's a constructive representation of what was there, yeah. right? Which is not necessarily representative of what, what was actually there. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of interesting to be able to experience that. Um, but anyway, so, so back to the representation generated imaging, right? So recognizing that our brains are, are you know, our brains are a very effective simulator, right? Oh, yeah. at, least, at least they can be, right? And so what we're doing is we're using a very simple stimuli um, that we can affordably and at scale create, right? right? Like for me to be able to uh, have role players, that's not very scalable, right? Like, right. can I do it? Yeah, right. But again, everybody's working on professionals been there. Okay, we're going to do scenarios. I spend, you know, seven and a half hours in an eight hour day sitting there waiting my turn. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You've only you, got X number of role players, right? Exactly. Um, and, 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 and so I, I call it, there's this paradox of like the more realistic, right? The more I try to engage these sensory systems and training and make the training relevant to the operational output, the less scalable the training is. And so the less actual learning I'm going to get. Right. right? Um, again, until you get to places that basically don't have any limitations on the resources. Um, you know, I try to create realistic training. Nobody gets any reps, right. Or I do training that had absolutely no, nothing related to the real world. I get a lot of reps and I get good at something with no real world relevance. Right. Um, and, and so we, we kind of often end up in this valley of despair in the middle Right, it's like the worst of all worlds because we're trying to manage these things together. Um, and so the, the, the solution to that, or at least what we're what we're targeting, is the solution to that which I we're seeing good, at least anecdotal evidence in training that is, that is quite effective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, look, I'm going to give a very simple stimulus, which may just be you know a green laser dot on the you know upper right torso of the subject. Right. Um, that means something, right? That indicates behavior. Right. I want you to image that. Right. Like, don't just say oh, there's a green dot. I'm going to shoot because there's a green dot. This green dot means this is a gun being drawn and pointed at me. Yeah. Um, and so I want you to image that. That green dot makes you image that actually happening. And then you're going to respond to it. So we're effectively using very simple, very, very simple visual stimulus to make the brain into a simulator. Yeah. Um, to be able to create very, very scalable, um, you know, training that makes makes us continually process information, make decisions, um, and, and creating a environment that is, you know, not, not high fidelity from the perspective of, um, you know, I walk into this thing and walk out of the heart rate at 350, mm -hmm. you know, feeling yeah. like I, you know, just almost died. No, because, you know, the reality is you go into that environment, you haven't actually learned anything because <laughs> the, the brain chemistry that's created in that environment precludes you from learning anything. Yeah, just, right. Just, other than creating it, other than creating traumatic associations, the brain right. chemistry precludes consolidation. 
right? Yeah. I uh, even just think about the time dilation alone, that factor, you know, that so many exactly. people have talked about, you know, just, and that's just, that's yep. just one thing, you know, that, that huge adrenaline dump, Correct. that's a lot of weird chemical that makes you exactly. see stuff exactly. and can't hear. And so it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, it, is, it is nuts. So, so rather than that, we're saying, look, we want to put, we want to take the relevant skills, the relevant information process and all that stuff that happened for real. We want to be able to do all of that with repetition over time so that we're matching it up with how these neural networks are actually developed in, mm-hmm. in the procedural memory system. And so let's do that, right? Let's build the right neural network into the procedural memory system by matching up like enough stimulation to kind of keep you on the edge of discomfort to make all the relevant brain processes work. And let's make that a part of everything that you do with a gun and then also be able to, right, getting into kind of what kicked us off the qualification, but also be able to measure your performance with those things incorporated. Right. Um, and so it's, you know, we're, we're kind of at the fledgling stages of how this gets applied because, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we've just gotten the kind of the tools out there, right? Um, and they're just starting to work and people are starting to use them. Um, like I said, some of the, some of the software is still in beta, so, you know, it's not, uh, not necessarily commercially available yet for the civilian market. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, it, at least on mine as a trainer, right? Because I'm I've been kind of down the rabbit hole on how do I solve these two problems, right? right. Structure and then the methods of measurement. Right. right? It's an entirely different uh, approach that we're, we're we're just kind of like relearning how to teach teach and teach and qualify, right? Yeah. Um, from, from scratch, which is pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to try it out. Yeah, well. we'll <laughs> I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Dustin, I'm coming up on my time limits here, man. But uh, again, uh, I am eternally grateful for you to take the time and, and talk about, you know, the books that started out with building shooters. And there's there's a whole stack of them over there that y'all sent to me. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, where that where that came from and, and how you got started, uh, it kind of a. Uh, kind of a lot of uh, food for thought for instructors that are out there. You know what I mean? And I think that this is, this is something, you know, the whole idea is to make a better shooter. And so if yep. we're, if we're, you know, like putting, um, you know, plastic into our lasagna, it's not going to work. So uh, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate, you know, being able to, to meet you and visit with you and everything else. But um, man, if, if there, if you ever want to come down, come down and hang out, maybe whenever this thing's ready, bring it down here to rifles only and we'll have a look at it. Oh, that. That sounds like a plan. We'll definitely make that happen. All right, brother. Well, stay on with me after the outro. And uh, just want to remind everybody uh, about the brawl. Talked about it in the beginning. If you didn't hear that, if you just picked it up somewhere else, it's coming up on uh, February 17th and 18th. So give us a call. Check us out at riflesonly.com. 